The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're amped up because our guest grew up in and around the world of baseball. He is president of the St. Louis Browns Historical Society and Fan Club and has worked feverishly to preserve the history and legacy of that American League team. He's authored now three books, if I'm not mistaken, on baseball. He co-authored the St. Louis Browns, The Story of a Beloved Team, and also authored Incredible Cardinals. As a matter of fact, the Browns book was selected as best book published on baseball in 2017 and led to a documentary shown on PBS. We're going to get into that with Emmy nominations and awards. Welcome to author Ed Wheatley. Ed, welcome. Welcome. Thanks. How are y'all doing? Good. Doing great. Hey, latest book, Baseball in St. Louis, from Little Leagues to Major Leagues. I got a copy of this yesterday from Reedy Press, and it was hot off the press, and oh my gosh, like, I, I can't believe this. I, I am flabbergasted with the things that I am learning here and kind of confirming but learning more that, you know, I'm born and raised here and never knew some of these things. St. Louis has a long, long history in the baseball world, you know, going back to 1860, so there's a lot there. And why, why don't you, I don't want to do a long historical chronology of this, or, uh, but I want to highlight a couple of things from, from the book. Talk about the, the debut of baseball in St. Louis and uh, the teams, the professional teams, and, you know, we're, we can get, kind of get into the, the Browns and the Cardinals, and I kind of prompted the audience, uh, the listeners in listener land, uh, previous hour about this connection between the Browns and the Cardinals, and it, it kind of threw me for a loop when I was reading your historical documentation of that. And uh, then the Negro Leagues kind of uh, at the same time. Talk a little bit about how baseball got started here in St. Louis. Well, you know, baseball came to the United States really like from Europe, from the game of rounders and cricket. It did not happen and was not created in Cooperstown as the myth went in 1839. You know, they've hmm. now to that is, is a fabrication and a myth. It really started in 1846 in Hoboken, New Jersey by a man named Alexander Cartwright. And baseball became the entertainment of the era. I mean, there wasn't TV, there wasn't movies, there was you know, no radio. There was really very little form of entertainment for people who work long, long hours. And baseball filled that void as, you know, you would have local town play the other town or factory, factory. And that's how it started back in East and as it came across uh, the United States, it wound up coming to St. Louis. Uh, the first recorded game under Andrew Cartwright's rules was played in Fairgrounds Park uh, in July 1860. That's you know almost a year before the Civil War began. And it's also interesting that that area there, having played at Fairgrounds Park, that would become the epicenter of baseball in St. Louis over the next hundred years because uh, down the street, you would have Sportsman's Park, uh, four blocks uh, south on Grand Avenue at uh, Dodier and Grand. And then the Cardinals played from 1893 uh, to 1920 in Robeson Field, Cardinal Field, had many different names, which is, sits right across the street from Fairgrounds Park at Vandeventer and Natural Bridge. So 
Baseball came huh. as an amateur game. As I said, it was a form of entertainment. People by the crowds would come watch whether it was a town versus town, a factory versus factory, and it's, it became more competitive. It started shifting from an amateur game to a professional game so that you know teams could keep players. They didn't want them to leave. They wanted to stay the good team. And that's where we evolved uh, professional baseball. And the first professional baseball team was founded in 1869 in Cincinnati. You may have heard of the Cincinnati Red Stockings. And mm-hmm. they are the first to issue contracts and get players signed up. And that's why baseball only opens up in Cincinnati. That's where they always have the, the ceremonial opening day games. Um, so it then evolved, and as it became this uh, attempt to get consistency and rules and um, farm leagues of play, the major leagues has its stamp of birth in 1876, seven years later after uh, the Red Stockings. And St. Louis actually had a team in that first major league era. And that league then of the major leagues was the National League. The National League is, that's why they call it the Senior Circuit. It was formed in 1876. The St. Louis had a team called the St. Louis Brown Stockings. And this name, as you alluded to a moment ago, between Browns and Brown Stockings is like a cat with a nine lives. It keeps appearing over and over and has... Uh, the moniker of many different teams. But in 1876, for two years, uh, the St. Louis had this team in the National League. They were kicked out of the National League over some gambling issues. So they were out uh, of the league. They would make a second appearance in the National League in 1885 as the St. Louis Maroons, a team you may have heard of before. And they lasted two years and disembarked because of financial issues. There was a period between 1876 and 1901, 31 different teams played in the National League. And in 1901, they brought them down to eight teams uh, because teams kept dropping out. A lot of them had gambling issues. A lot of them had financial shortfalls. But the Cardinals, as we know them today, became the third team to enter the National League in 1892. And they actually came in as the Browns. If you go look at the Cardinal history, they started as the Browns. Now, people say, where did this Browns name come from? It goes back to the Browns. When baseball was first played, their names were generally taken by the color of their socks and the piping on their uniforms. And there had been a team when those two National League teams folded, in the American Association, not a part of the Major League National League, was the American Association from St. Louis that in the 1880s was a preeminent team. They were called the Brown Stockings. Chris Vonder I, a name that you may be familiar with, he was the owner of the team. Because of their success and their three uh, championships, they were invited to come into the Major Leagues. They did in 1892, and that is how we know them. Uh, and that's the history, the birth date of the St. Louis Cardinals that we watch today. But they kept that name as the Browns until 1898, and they changed that name to the Perfectos. As they were changing the color of their uniforms, they had gone from brownish to a brick red. And for in 1898, they were the Perfectos. And in 1899, uh, they take the name the Cardinals after you've heard the story 
uh, that lovely shade of cardinal red. And for thereupon now, in starting with the 1900 season, uh, they were the Cardinals. And they stayed that way up until, you know, today. But the St. Louis Browns came to town as the American League was formed in 1901. Remember the National League, as I said a moment ago, was founded in 1876. That's why the American League is the junior circuit nickname. And the Browns came in 1902. The first year of the American League, they were in Milwaukee as the Milwaukee Brewers. But St. Louis was the fourth largest city in the country, hustling, bustling, gateway to the West. And so um, the uh, American League president, he moved the Milwaukee Brewers to St. Louis, and they took the name the Browns. And for the next 52 years, St. Louis had the Browns and the Cardinals uh, as their two major league teams. So I'll just pause there for a minute. You know, I, I found that so interesting. I had never heard that the Cardinals had been, you know, the Browns or the Brown stockings or come, you know, the perfectos. And it was, it was very fascinating because, as you state in the book, it's like when you talk about the St. Louis Browns, it's like, okay, which team are you talking about? Are you talking it's about very the confusing. American League yeah. Browns? Who were, yeah, it is kind of confusing. Well, and both teams played it. And both teams played at Sportsman's Park, didn't they? At the same time. Well, not initially. Uh, okay. And, you know that to add on one last thing. You know, people don't realize there were actually three different National League teams in St. Louis in this history. But to your point, wow. In 1892, when the St. Louis Browns, A.K.A. Cardinals, came in, Sportsman's Park was kind of old and falling apart a little bit. So they actually created their own field, as I said, up at uh, Natural Bridge in Vandeventer, which is only like five blocks away from Sportsman's Park. Uh, To put it in people's context, that's where Beaumont High School stood, which is the irony. Robeson Field that you have there uh, was the last wooden grandstand. And when it burned down, yeah, the Cardinals had to find a place to go. It, it, in 1920, they were basically a team without a stadium. You know, would they move out of town to a different city? And also, the Cardinals between 1892 and 1920 were a lousy team, very mismanaged. They had lured Branch Rickey from the St. Louis Browns to the Cardinals, uh, Sam Breeden did, because he wanted winners. And one of Branch Rickey's Things was, he had a third alternative. He would take the Cardinals, instead of having to spend money on building a stadium or spend money going out of town, he wanted to build the farm system. And that's why he, he fell out of ways with the Browns. So he is the one who then went down to Philip DeCaspi Ball, the Browns owner, and kind of who ran a fast one by him because he was known to be a cheapskate because he wouldn't let Ricky invest when the farm system, and really invented because it did not exist in those days. It was all free agency. And Ricky felt he could develop talent uh, cheaper, better. And the Cats Ball didn't want to spend the money. Well, Ricky told him, look, you're using your stadium only half the time. Think about all the time you're gone on the road. We could be using it. I could be paying you. And the Cats Ball took that bait and ran with it. Well, Ricky then wasn't paying very much money because he no longer was maintaining a stadium. He signed a long-term lease that wasn't for very much money. 
over the course of several decades, it looked like a lot of money, but per season it wasn't. And that's where then the um, Cardinals created the first farm system, developed all the great talent of the 1920s, and led to pennants in 26, 28, 30, 31, 34, 42, 43, 44, 46. So... It was that situation that then brought them in, and for uh, those 50, almost 50 years, they, they were uh, tenants of the St. Louis Browns. The Browns owned Sportsman's Park until Augie Bush bought them when the Browns left. All that other time, it was the Browns and the Cardinals were the tenants. That's just absolutely crazy. You know, and, and folks, if you're not... Uh, if you're not doing anything, you need to send and get for this get this book, Baseball in St. Louis, from Little Leagues to Major Leagues. This is Arnold Strickler with Mark Langston of Intune. We're talking to Ed Wheatley, who's the author of that book. And uh, it is um, available from Reedy Press. And, Ed, the, the continuing the St. Louis story here, but I just want to look yes. at a little sidebar comment. Uh, folks, he has in the book these diamond gems where it's, it's this, these little interesting tidbits that you never knew about baseball, at least I never knew, and or about baseball in St. Louis. And I, I love it. This is the, the third time's a charm a national team league team takes root. And uh, the, the gem of the first, you know, St. Louis had the first woman baseball owner, uh, she got that right. by default because of uh, her uncle and father passed away. And we've kind of talked about some of these things on, on previous shows, but how uh, the development of not only professionally, but then, uh, you know, kind of want to go into the Negro Leagues. And, and what he does, folks, is he traces this through, you know, high school, through American Legion, through Little League, and learning about um, – the Corey League and the foundation of right. that. It's just fascinating to me. Uh, so, Ed, it, let's, let's kind of shift a little bit to, uh, right, right. to the Negro League a little bit. And, and that's really where the book was. I mean, the book is saying, why is St. Louis the best baseball in town? I mean, we have such strong roots and strong histories. You know, as I was, uh, just one other thing to say about Robeson Field when it burned down, Beaumont High School, as I said there, this is the, the, all, these are all the pieces that intrigue me. Beaumont High School at one point had more men in the major leagues than any other high school in the country. You know, I kind of put it as one of these um, diamond gems. They, you know, I, I patterned them after my first book when I had Brownie Bites, um, uh-huh. the Browns book, these little factoid things of interest. The thing about Beaumont High School is it was built and sits on the side of Robeson Field. So I kind of joked in there as one of my Brownie Bites, I mean, excuse me, my, my uh, diamond gems, is was it the ash of that stadium burning that got into the the field where the players played and produced so many great men, and that's that's yeah. the thing about this this history, you know, more men in the major. Earl league. Weaver, uh, Earl, Earl Weaver, Dick Williams. Oh yeah, he uh, went to Beaumont High Seaver School. He was a white American guy, league. but he went to Beaumont. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, Roy Seaver's the first ever American League Rookie of the Year played there. I mean, Pete Reeser. There's all these. You know, we list them, but you know. And when you have good high schools, and Beaumont was the premier in the country, but we had Central Roosevelt. And then, you know, you start moving west, and you had Rittner with Ron Hunt uh, and, and Jerry Royce. University City, you know, had Ken Holtzman, Art Chamsky. And then you come all the way out to the Lafayette where you have Ryan Howard, Luke Boyd, David Freeze. Wow. So there's all these great teams. Huh. And over on the on the east side, you know, you had New Athens with Whitey Herzog, Granite City with Dow Maxwell. 
So there was this evolution, and with good high schools, you have good American Legion teams, and the American Legion teams in St. Louis were some of the best, uh, multiple times, many times, playing for the national championship and winning it, and we record all that. But I think you want to go, let's go chronologically, how this amateur game, while, so as Major League Baseball was farming and founding, the African-American experience, they didn't have Major League teams, and that's where they started playing kind of as clubs and would play each other. And then in uh, 1920, uh, 100 years this year, they formed the Negro Leagues. And St. Louis had had a team called the St. Louis Giants. And they had a stadium over at Clarence and Broadway, which is right at the bottom of O'Fallon Park as you're making that curve to come into the city on Highway 70 on the east Mm -hmm. side is where Giants Stadium was. And there was a rift over the Giants' management and uh, the leadership of the Negro Leagues, and it, they, they forced Charles Mill, the owner, to sell. A new conglomerate came in, and they changed the name to the Stars. And the Stars is what we really remember in the Negro right. Leagues because, you uh, you know, the great um, names, that Cool Papa Bell, you know, there's five men in the, the baseball Cooperstown Hall of Fame uh, who played either for the Giants or the uh, St. Louis Stars. And I always tell people, when you go downtown to watch the Cardinals and you're driving east on Highway 40 and you pass Chaffetz Center there at Compton, St. Louis U, across the street is Harris Stowe. And there is a baseball field there at Compton and Market. You see it right from the, the highway. That is where Stars Park, where... Um, the uh, the St. Louis Stars played, and they were three-time uh, world champions. 1928, while the Cardinals were playing the Yankees in the World Series, just up the street, uh, and the Yankees won, you know, overcoming their defeat by the Cardinals in 26 World Series. The Stars actually were the, the world champions. They, they won the, the Negro World Series. and So we had all that great history of the – African-American players coming through St. Louis. And one of the things also when we speak of the African-American experience that really, you know, either when I've talked up at Cooperstown at the Hall of Fame or at the uh, Negro Baseball League Museum in Kansas City, people have forgotten that the St. Louis Browns were the first team to have two black players on their team, the third and fourth men uh, in the major leagues, um, Hank Thompson and Willard Brown, Jackie Robinson being the first. And then, um, you know, Cleveland had, uh, my mind just went blank on it. Um, um, I give this talk all the time. No, the second. And and so the St. Louis Browns under William DeWitt Sr., Bill DeWitt Sr., they brought in uh, these two players. And people forgot, here's the team that had the third and fourth, had two black players on their team, and it was seven years before the Cardinals would have a black player. Uh, and I and find that very interesting because we've talked about that before, that why seven years? You know, you got the Browns. Is, is it just that Bill DeWitt Sr. was saw more value uh, in, in the players that were coming out of the Negro League? and Or, or what do you think that was? Because even what was it, Boston was the last one to integrate? Oh, yeah. Um, I'll answer the first part, and then we'll come about Boston because they kind of, you know, we got to dish it to them occasionally. But, um, you know, Bill DeWitt 
and uh, Richard Muckerman. Muckerman was the owner. Bill DeWitt would uh, own the team. He would buy them from Muckerman the next year. He was looking for good players. You know, Jackie Robinson had come uh, from the Kansas City Monarchs, um, and you know he he looked at them as having good good players. And so the other thing, giving him you know foresight, was that he uh, saw that St. Louis had a very large African-American community. And he was reaching out to them and saying, if we brought in players, we'll bring in, in the crowds. And, uh, you know, he, he was more of a visionary, you know, than the, the others. Mm-hmm. You know, baseball, when it integrated in, in 1947, by the end of the year there were only four teams. And um, within two years, there was only 11 players. So it wasn't a fast integration. Teams were slow uh, to take the challenge. And as you spoke, Boston, it would be 12 years, 1959. Pumpsy Green took the field for the um, Boston Red Sox. And what is kind of amazing about that is when you read your history books and everything, Boston is considered the, the the cradle of democracy, you know, the the land of liberty, this whole place. But yet, they were the last to integrate their baseball team. Yeah, I I found that very Hank, interesting. And and Hank Aaron was he was in there. He was uh, was he one of the last um, African Americans to come over to. Uh, uh, to professional book baseball, wasn't he? Well, the Braves were I, not. I, I the Braves were not. The Braves were not fast in doing it. You really had the Dodgers, uh, the Browns, the Giants, uh, and, the, and the Cleveland Indians. They were uh, the real, you know, um, quick to follow. And then you know, because Bill Veck had signed Larry Dolby in July '47, just a few days before Hank Thompson and um, Willard Brown took the field for the Browns. You got to remember, it was Bill Veck who signed um, Larry Dolby for the Indians, and then a few years later, Veck comes as the owner of the Browns, and who's he bring? He brings Satchel Paige, Satchel, the great Satchel Paige of the Negro Leagues, and he had uh, Veck had Satchel Paige pitch for the Indians in '48 when they won and, the World Series. And so, I mean, St. Louis Satchel was this, I'm sorry, Satchel was a, a older guy too, wasn't he? In his 40s or something? Oh yeah, he was he in was his mid forties, and and right. you know I, to tell you how good he was, he represented the Browns twice in the All Star game. Wow. And you know when I sit and I talk to these men who played for the Browns or played with Satchel Page on other teams or against him, when he even though he was in his mid forties, he was still one of the best pitchers in the league. And then even to tell you something more, so we're talking about nineteen. Uh, 50, late 51, 52, 53, when Satchel Page was pitching for the Browns. So it's just said, 1953. He was in his mid-40s. 1965, the Kansas City Athletics and Charlie Finley have Satchel Page pitch a game for the Hold Athletics. that thought now, Ed. Hold that thought. We're going to take a break. This is Arnold Stricker oh. with Mark Lane uh, in tune. Listen to KWRH 92.9 FM. We've been talking to Ed Wheatley, author of Baseball in St. Louis from Little League to Major League. Stay with us. Can't wait. 
Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We've been talking to Ed Wheatley, who's the author of Baseball in St. Louis, From Little Leagues to Major Leagues, which is available at Reedy Press. And, I, uh, Ed, I'm sorry, I didn't want you to commit a balk. I'm going to use some baseball analogy terms oh, here my. prior to our break, but uh, needed Don't to let him do it. Uh, interject. <laughs> yeah, needed to interject there to get our break done. So continue <laughs> with the story. Let's, let's complete the pitch on Satchel Page. Yeah, Satchel, you know, as we said, he had pitched for the Browns in the, in the mid-40s. He was an all-star, appeared in the all-star games in 52 and 53. And when the Browns left St. Louis, Baltimore basically, you know, rubbed their hands of anything Browns. And he was out of baseball, and he played uh, in some Negro League games and did a lot of uh, barnstorming. But in 1965, Charlie Finley and the Kansas City Athletics brought him to pitch to a game. You know, some would say, hey, it's a publicity stunt, but Satchel made sure it wasn't because they were playing the Boston Red Sox, and Satchel, for the first multiple innings that he pitched, he threw a one-hitter, allowing only one hit to an eventual batting champion, Carl Yastrzemski. And after the game, Satchel uh, went up to Yastrzemski and said, congratulations, you got a hit, but I thought I'd let you have a hit since your dad hit one off me a long time ago. So (laughs) Satchel is just full of stories, and that's what this book is. It's it's, uh, tons of stories, and it's taken people back. This is this isn't for the major leaguer focus. It's like the everyday Joe's focus that, you, like I said, you could have gone to school with these guys. You could have played it. You know, I might have been a terrible ball player, but I got to bat against Kenny Holtzman or Jerry Royce one day or Bob Weisler mm-hmm. or whoever. You know, these guys have made the majors and the stories of uh, uh, the high school, the American Legion teams, and the other thing we do is, you know. I also tell the stories where I've gotten to know uh, a, a bunch of the women of the All-American Girl Professional Baseball League. Remember the movie, The uh, League of Their Own? Yes, right. thanks for talking right. about it. Yeah. yeah. And, no crying uh, in baseball. When I was up uh, speaking at Cooperstown last year uh, for our, our second film, which both my films got selected uh, by, by the Hall of Fame for inclusion in their film series over the weekend, and this book is also being made into a film for PBS uh, as we speak. But uh, oh, wow. I got to know these women. There were four premier women from um, the St. Louis area who played in that league. The St. Louis did not have a team. Most of the teams were up in the Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, all that kind of core area right around there. Because uh, Phil Wrigley, the owner of Wrigley Gum and the Chicago Cubs, he was the uh, man who had put that league together. But, there, you know, we still have the history of the women in baseball in St. Louis. And we actually still have one lady, Barb Hoffman, who, who played in the league and is still alive in St. Louis. Huh. Wow. Never knew that. No. I never knew a George Corey. Well, yes. The Corey League had its foundation here in St. Louis. I kind of thought that was some national thing. and It was, well, well, you know, somebody else. It is a national thing. The Corey League, which is in all 50 states and, you know, has grown in across the world in, in other countries, now, it's still headquartered here in St. Louis. Now, a lot of these local communities have kind of taken over what the Corey League did worldwide in the uh, 40s and 50s and 60s, and so a lot of these communities are trying to run their own baseball leagues. But all that great, uh, the Little Leagues, the Corey Leagues, and you know, for St. Louis it was so special, not only because it was created here, 
But the one thing I would talk to all these people who played, you know, they all wanted, you see, the book is full of pictures. I mean, I can't, there's like 400 and some pictures in this book. It's and then crazy. Pieces it's of unbelievable. Memorabilia uh, in the book, which, you know, follows the pattern of my Browns book, as you said, you know, got a, a bunch of awards. But one of the most cherished pieces of baseball memorabilia for a little kid was to be a Corey League All-Star and play an All-Star game at Sportsman's Park and then have your team picture in front of that big, iconic scoreboard they had in left field in Sportsman's Park. And, you know, you talk about something else that's uniquely St. Louis that was taken around the world was corkball. Uh, yes. You know, anyone who grew up in the 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, every tavern in St. Louis basically had a corkball net either in their basement or behind the bar. And all the churches, because a lot of corkball uh, origins came out of the uh, Catholic Church. And corkball was a unique um, St. Louis uh, game, a very small uh, ball and a very, almost like a broom handle type bat, has all these d- dimensions. But you know, what happened was when World War II came, all these St. Louisans took their corkball bats and balls with them when they went into service, and it was taught to all these players from all over the country by St. Louisans. I mean, I even got a story in there, uh, Yogi Berra, Berra teaching the Yankees how to play corkball up at Yankee Stadium because none of the players, you know, really understood or knew the game. But it's, one, again, one of those St. Louis. I mean, St. Louis, the history, I mean, when you – you go in the back, I, I create these, this baseball port Paris section. I mean, you know, we had Rawlings Sports, you know, for over 100 years has been the uh, the distributor of baseball equipment to the major leagues and everywhere else in the country. We had the Sporting News, which was here in St. Louis, which was the baseball Bible every week telling you what was going on in baseball. So St. Louis just overflows with baseball history. You mentioned about the court ball. I remember playing that uh, in elementary and junior high school. When when you'd only have a handful of kids, oh, yeah. and you'd still oh, want to yeah. play ball, you you could do it. And now you correct me on these origins here, uh, Ed, because I want to know like some of the taverns used to have. I remember some of those screens. Uh, they were yeah. off to the side or behind, but yeah. some of them actually used bottle caps. Is that, am well, I they, dreaming they, they or? There were variations of the game, and there were uh, times you would use bottle caps and a broomstick. But, I mean, it was, it's all basically uh, the same game uh, with just the variations, you know. Uh, but it's all, a, you know, St. Louis tradition, like uh, toasted ravioli and all that, right? Uh, right. But, I mean, there's just so much decade by decade, as you said, you know, great high school players, great American Legion teams and players, great ballplayers and probably one of my favorite things was putting together what I call the all St. Louis team of baseball players. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, who were the best in the major leagues that came out of St. Louis? And that really, really can stir a lot of debate uh, as to who it is and, you know, what they were. Cause I mean, you know, everyone knows or should know Yogi Bear is the greatest major leaguer to ever come out of St. Louis. I mean, it's hard to argue with as many, um, all-star appearances and World Series appearances that he, you know, he had. He had 14 pennants, uh, 10 World Series championships, 18 All-Star games. And what this team I picked has two men at every position: three left-handed starters, three right-handed starters, three in the bullpen. And everybody okay. comes and says, "Well, Joe Garagiola, he's your backup catcher." And it's like, no, doesn't even make the team. 
Really? People, for, <laughs> people forget we had a gentleman, the greatest African-American major league player that came out of St. Louis was Elston Howard. He only played on 10 uh, World Series and 12 All-Star games with the Yankees. And actually the irony of this whole thing is he's the one who took over for Yogi Berra. Uh, right, so and I didn't back, even know he was from St. Louis. That was crazy. Yeah, he went to Vashon High School. I, I love Vashon about your I. book is that it's just this, you uncover so many wonderful and interesting and informative uh, things. And what it does is it really fills in a lot of gaps. And, you know, you, you trace the history of baseball in St. Louis and, and show the prominence of baseball in St. Louis. And we kind of know that because, you know, we're, we're diehard Cardinal fans. But, uh, you know, the Browns were nothing to slough at uh, back in the day no. when, when they were no. in their prime. And it's well, very unfortunate that Baltimore has kind of, you know, kicked them to the curb. Well, the thing about the Browns is absolutely that Baltimore, right when they moved in 54, said the Browns died, they were buried in St. Louis, and they did not come east. Um, and they put their legacy towards the minor league team that they had. And I, you know, just tell quickly their story. In 1901, when the American League was formed, as I spoke, how the Browns were, their franchise actually started in Milwaukee. The Orioles actually had a team in 1901 and 2 and 3, and that team was moved by Ban Johnson, just like he moved Milwaukee to St. Louis. And 1903, he moved the Orioles to New York uh, to become the Highlanders and then change their name to the Yankees. So from 1903 up until 1954, uh, Baltimore was without a team, and they built a kind of a Yankee equivalent minor league. They were the, the top franchise in the, uh, in the minor leagues and put, produced many great stars. Babe Ruth was actually, he came out of their Baltimore club. So that's where they put all their, their heritage and, it, and attention to, but you know, the Browns weren't always good, but they had such. I mean, the, the thing I have found over these years is what a staunch following they had. These people loved the Browns. They were, this is going to be the year. But the other thing about the Browns and what makes St. Louis so great and so different from so many other cities is the Browns played the American League circuit. So you could go watch a Browns game and you would see, you know, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig. You know, Hank Greenberg, Bob Feller, they all came through St. Louis. So this is why you have such an educated uh, city history of fans. You know, it's like, why do you watch TV? Do you see other stadiums? The seats are so half empty, but yet St. Louis, full. You know, you see a player from an opposing team makes a great catch, and he can get a, a huge ovation from the crowds because the educated fan appreciates it. And, you know, in some other cities, you're going to get booed or, who knows what thrown at you? But it, you know, think about when Albert Pujols came to town. Now he he abandoned St. Louis. He uh, you know signed with the Angels. He's not one of us. But how many standing ovations did Albert Pujols get last June? You know, mm-hmm. that's the thing about this baseball town that we live in, and how educated and passionate. And it, you know, when you go back, as I keep going back to these high school teams, these American Legion teams, you know, these. Semi-pro leagues of the 50s and 60s were just outstanding. They were better than most minor league teams. You would have, in the city of St. Louis, these semi-pro teams in which an 18-team roster, probably 10 or 11 of the men had played pro ball, and four or five had actually played major league ball, and they're playing each other 
every weekend, and you would have crowds of hundreds, whether it was at Heine Miney, uh, Fairgrounds Park, Baldwin, Manchester, watching these. And there are recorded instances where there were several thousand people on a given day uh, watching these teams play. That is the passion of baseball, and you got to look at it in the terms not like today when you see you know video games and iPhones and TVs and everything. Think back in the days when there really wasn't much of anything but going out to the park and watching a baseball game or playing baseball. You include St. Louis ballparks in here. You know, I'm looking oh, yeah. at uh, a page that has them all located on a map. And one of the things that I really appreciate how you've done your book is, especially with these ballparks, as you show showed what they looked like, if there is a picture or a photograph yeah. of them, and then where it is now. And um, especially the one there, where the recent photograph where the stars had played, that photograph has yeah. recently been found, uh, which yeah. is really nice to see how large that stadium was. Uh, yeah. But the, the book is, is just tremendous, Ed. It's, um, it's very well done. You've got, um, for those people who just like to look at pictures, which when I was younger sometimes I did, but um, I, know, I do like the information. Your content is uh, superb. And it just matches up. It flows very well. You have these little uh, tidbits like we talked about that you have along the way. And you really lay out the foundation for uh, St. Louis and its baseball history and its passion and love that the community has for, uh, for this summertime sport, whether it's Little League or High School or American Legion or minor leagues. You talk about the minor leagues or the Negro Leagues, or the Women's League, or the the Professional Baseball Leagues. So hats off to you. Thank you. I mean, and he gives us, you give us hope, too, because we just had opening day that we missed. <laughs> and we missed it so bad. It's good to hear some baseball, for crying out loud. Well, you know, these are happy memories, happy times looking back. at You know, whether it's when I, you, whoever played Little League, those were happy times. When you... Um, you know, you think about your high school or Legion. You know, for so many people, this is happy times. And the thing about that is, I give a lot of talks to retirement homes just because I enjoy talking about baseball and these people uh-huh. need some people to visit. And the thing of it was, the people in their 80s and 90s now, they had pretty rough lives. They lived through a depression. They lived through World War II, Korean War. We can throw in Vietnam if you want. And social unrest yep. at times. But the thing that always gets you through that was baseball. You know, there wasn't the entertainment or other sources. There was baseball. And so for so many of these people, they're, they're happy memories, you know. They, every night they, they listen to Dan McLaughlin or Mike Shannon, and, uh-huh. you know, it just resonates back uh-huh. to the days of Harry Carey and Jack Buck. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've said this one where I remember – laying in bed when I was supposed to be sleeping, I had my transistor radio plugged into my ear listening to Harry Carey call with his common color commentator, Jack Buck, what a team, and listening to the Cardinals uh, play. And what, what great memories of that. And, and you bring those back, and I think you will establish some memories for some families. Folks, a great book to get. It's entitled Baseball in St. Louis, from Little Leagues to Major Leagues. It's by Ed Wheatley, who's been our guest. It's a hardcover book, 11 and a half by 9, 240 pages, unbelievable kinds of photographs and information. It's available from Reedy Press, and uh, Reedy Press is R-E-E-D-Y Press, 
and you can check that out. Ed, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. What an honor to have you on. It really was. Thank you, Ed. Thank you so much.